Hi, my name's Diana Trepkoff, and I'd like to welcome you to my new podcast called Can I Help Find Your Missing Loved One? I'm a forensic artist who's completed hundreds of law enforcement cold cases, and I can tell you firsthand the pain and suffering I have witnessed on families of missing loved ones. I can see the pain on their face, I can hear the pain in their voice, and I feel it in my heart. My dream is that all missing persons will be found and there will never be another missing person ever again. That's what I pray for. That's what I hope for. And that is my dream. So please welcome my new podcast, Can I Help Find Your Missing Loved One? And one by one, let's bring these missing loved ones home. Thank you. listening to my podcast called Can I Help Find Your Missing Loved One. Today we have an amazing, remarkable expert guest. His name is Mark Bailey, and he's from Maryland, America. And it's going to be a really interesting conversation. Um, wow, you're remarkable. Mark, I went through your experience and it blew me away. So I'd like to tell everyone, you were with the Maryland State Police from 1994 to 2006 the United States Army, Maryland Army National Guard and Reserves, 1997 to the present, and Bailey Funeral Home and Cremation Service, you're the president, 2009 to the present. And we have so much to talk about, but thank you so much for being on the podcast, first of all. Thank you. I appreciate it. Um, you know, this is a, a real joy to be able to, uh, to talk with you. And likewise, I, I feel the same about you and your experience. Uh, so this is uh, something I've been, been wanting to do for some time, so I'm, I'm glad we had an opportunity to do it. Thank you. Um, so let's start off with, let, let the world know, who is, who is Mark Bailey? When you were young, what were your passions? What did you want to do when you grew up? <laughs> oh, well, you know, interestingly enough, I had no interest in, in funeral service or death whatsoever. I was, uh, my, my real passions were baseball, of course, which, you know, big American pastime here. Nice. I found myself uh, spending a lot of time, different travel teams uh, throughout. And it wasn't until I attended um, a community college here in Maryland that I even found out what the mortuary science program was. And it was after that um, experience where I was playing baseball and going to college at, at the school that offered mortuary science, that's when I started to find myself really interested in becoming a mortician. Um, and interestingly enough, I worked uh, for a funeral home when I started when I was 17. And uh, I really, I, I would find myself there late at night. And uh, <laughs> a lot of people would kind of find this funny, you know, here you are, you're into this, you know, interest of, of death, and you kind of know that you're going to be around death all the time. Yeah. Uh, I found myself uh, scared. Uh, a lot of times because I was there late at night and you know you hear the creaky noises and, and the place seems to be you know older and you're like oh man you know what's going on and you hear all these weird noises and you know it was it was actually for for probably about three years I found myself actually kind of scared to uh, be in a funeral home by myself yeah yeah no I understand that I understand because it, it actually I still like it's weird. Someone once said to me, well, what you do, Diana, it's, it's morbid. I'm like morbid. I'm, I'm, I'm helping people. I'm helping, you know, put a face to a skull or I'm helping families with, you know, to find their missing loved one. And it's weird how people perceive things. I did. I never considered it morbid. And, um, but I, I get a little afraid with funeral homes. So that's why I think this is a really important conversation we're going to have because we both work with the death and, I can probably learn a lot. Well, I can learn a lot from you, and I'm sure the listener as well too. Um, yeah. So continue. Tell tell me some stories. So so uh, you know I I found I found myself um, after several years. I actually left funeral service, and uh, the funeral director that I worked for at the time, his family was uh, also uh, part of the state of Maryland. Uh, his brother was a uh, doctor for the state of Maryland overseeing all the different uh, organizations in the state of Maryland. State police happened to be one of them. And the, interestingly, the, the uh, owner convinced me to talk to the state police and thought that because I was a young guy at the time, I was 19, uh, working for my second funeral home. He said, Mark, I think it'd be a great idea if you decided to become a state trooper. And I, at first I was kind of 
confused, like, hey, wait, I thought I was doing really well, you know, and yeah. he's like, no, no, you're doing a great job, but I think that you'd be better served, you know, getting out, you're a young guy, enjoying the world and, and seeing, you know, what life has to offer. Well, you know, becoming a state trooper, you, you find yourself right back in the midst of dealing with death. Uh, every single day, you know, whether it be um, working on a death report, working on, a, you know, working in homicide, working uh, a different type of, you know, death related incident, whether it be somebody committing suicide at home, you know, I found myself right back into the thick of dealing with death. And for me, it was, uh, it was, it was kind of like, reassuring that, okay, you know, I, I wanted to do this. And now I find myself learning a different aspect and understanding about dealing with death. So then um, going back to funeral service uh, occurred in early 2000s when I was, I was called up for um, Operation Noble Eagle uh, here in the United States shortly uh, after the Iraq incident. And I found myself reinvesting back into mortuary science after I had a uh, soldier had committed suicide and, and that was something that, you know, helping the family in that aspect of dealing with the death of their loved one. And I was assigned as um, the casualty assistance of helping that family go through the military process. So now I'm, you know, here I am, I'm a, you know, I've worked in funeral service. I became an apprentice early on. I moved into law enforcement, dealing with death consistently. In fact, when, when they found out my background, they would consistently, the state would consistently send me out to these house calls to present the, the discussion of death with the family, letting them know their loved one had died. And in law enforcement, they call that making the death notification. Mm -hmm. And that was something that I was like, okay, you know, I'm very passionate about helping people, explaining to them what happened to their loved ones. And then I move into the military and I do the same thing. So as you can see, my, my history has, of death has continuously followed me uh, mm -hmm. to where I am now um, in you know, working in funeral service, um, president of the Maryland State Board, um, you know, and working for the pandemic. So I'm right back into the, the thick of dealing with death in every capacity of my life. How do you how do you handle it? Like, um, does it get to you? Does it get too dark? The sadness when you go home? Do you have nightmares? Can you sleep through the night? Like, how do you handle seeing the families in such distress? And how do you cope? From GCU on how funeral directors experience burnout, it was a phenological study, and I conducted my research on eleven funeral directors here in the state of Maryland. And interestingly, I found that they all had experienced different levels of coping. Okay. Um, and I found that I used a lot of the different coping mechanisms myself. For example, uh, I like to take long drives. I have this beautiful route that I like to travel uh, that goes through a very secluded area. It's a wooded area um, and the homes are beautiful. So it gets me into feeling, okay, hey, you know, with all this death and all these things that we're dealing with, there's a lot of beauty out there that we need to find ourselves immersed in. So I'm, I'm able to, to get away and escape mentally from what we deal with. And I think that's very important to be able to, we hear the terms compartmentalize. Mm -hmm. um, there is a certain level of compartmentalization that I do do um, because we deal with all types of death. We deal with um, you know, fatalities of traffic accidents, self-inflicted wounds, like gunshots and hangings. And, you know, it is something that as a professional that deals with this every day, you do find yourself at times, um, you know, having moments of sadness and it's unexplained, but knowing the signs, I can say, okay, I know that, you know, at this moment, I have to take a step back, have to take a step away and I have to reevaluate my life and, and, you know, music therapy is something that a lot of people need to really uh, appreciate because there's, there's so much beauty in, in that. Yeah. Um, taking, you know, art classes. I have a friend and she, she really enjoys her art classes. Um, she's not very good, but, but she enjoys her art class and she will tell you that I'm not very good at what I do, but I really enjoy it. Yeah. So, you know, so those are things, coping mechanisms are so critical 
to the psyche, especially anybody who's dealing with death on a regular basis. You really have to find an outlet that prevents you from having it consume your life because we do see suicide in professions that deal with death a lot in law enforcement. And um, one of the things that I do to get back into that community is that I still teach for the state police uh, death notifications, suicide prevention, and, and psychology of death to help people understand how difficult uh, it is to manage that process. Very good. Very good. What don't you do? <laughs> but I was going through it and I was like, whoa. And my daughter is going in to be a police officer. I said, look at who I'm interviewing today. Mark Bailey, look at this. It goes on forever. She's like, wow, mom. <laughs> like, so, well, I've, I've, been, I've been very blessed and I've been put into a, a lot of good positions to be able to help a lot of people. And I think that is one of the most important aspects of any profession I've been involved in to this day is, you know, with the intentions of, of helping people. Uh, you know, the world has its problems. Uh, mm -hmm. Societies have problems. But if you can put that aside and look for the greater good and what you can do to help people, it all works itself out. I always explain to people when I was a state trooper, you know, if you're driving down the road and, you know, you, somebody cuts you off, the last thing you want to do is take that uh, anger or aggression out on the next driver and let, not let them in. I always tell people, if you, if you find yourself letting that person in that's coming in, somewhere along your day, somebody's going to give you the same benefit. And I think that's probably one of the, the, the things that have stuck with me about helping people. If you want to really do the right things, uh, in any profession, if you go into it with the mindset of you're going to help people, ultimately that's going to be the outcome. And, and people see that. And, you know, like the work that you do, um, people see the goodness of, of what you're doing. And it is so critical that both of us being in separate entities of death care still converge and, and marry up. And, and what the outcome is, is that you're able to provide a service where people see the work that you do and, and feel how appreciative they are after you have helped somebody reconnect with their loved one that, you know, has not uh, been able to do that. And we had a case here at the funeral home a few years back mm -hmm. where the family, we had taken care of the, um, we had to pick up the, the bones mm -hmm. of, of someone that was finally identified after 30 years. Oh, so wow. it is was, that case. Yeah. Um, so interestingly, the family was just a wonderful family, just nice people. The, the little girl had vanished um, probably around the 80s, I guess it was. Mm -hmm. And um, they had buried her. And the, the family, they finally figured out who she was through DNA. And when we were called in here at the funeral home, uh, the family was just beside themselves because they received the news but then here we are as the funeral professionals now walking them and guiding them through this very tragic situation where the brother had, you know, had fond memories of his sister uh, when she was younger. And, you know, he's trying to relay and convey those thoughts. And it was so, he was so confused about his feelings and emotions because here he is, he's incredibly sad about, you know, what his memories were, but then he's also very happy about the fact that she's now returned and they confirm this is who she is. So, so that, that, that confusion for people of being, you know, the, this distress of sadness, but then also this happiness of now they finally know, and there's no more of, is this person coming home, uh, is something really, really difficult to navigate people through that, that grief process. But when you do, and you see the, the joy in their face, and they, they reconnect with you, or they send you a message, and they say, thank you so much for everything you do, uh, it's so rewarding. And, you know, and, I, and the stories that we have can go on. I had um, not too long ago, we had a gentleman in Ellicott City um, who happened to be a service member had been washed away uh, in, the, in, in a flood that we had in Ellicott City a few years back. And, you know, he, the family was told that he, he had passed and the police told him, but there wasn't that real, real shock until they came to the funeral home and here we are presenting the, the death uh, of that person to them and showing them because they actually had an open casket viewing. Mm -hmm. And that emotion was, that was the first real time of confirmation that they had experienced a death. Mm 
They really knew it for that moment. It was confirmed. It was no more through the media. It was no more through other people that said, this is what we found. This was real. This is the, the first time that they're seeing their loved one. And it's a much different experience than the family who knew their, their husband or wife or child had passed yeah. and they were coming in, you know, they already knew that, you know, this was the first time. And this is where it's so different than any other experience because making that role, you know, of death notification right there with them and they're seeing their loved one based on what they've heard. Now they're seeing them. It's a lot different. It's much more difficult. Yeah. You touched my heart. Tell me that story. There's, um, there, oh, I've done 232 law enforcement cold cases. I got to know so many families and they're all dear in my heart. And the one family I'm helping right now, um, Shane Smith was murdered by his friends, some friends, but anyways, they're murdered. He was murdered by his friends and thrown into the Bull River in Calgary and they can't find him. And it was June 6th he was murdered. So the arrests have been made, um, but they can't find the body. And I speak to Shirley, Shane's mom, and they're, they feel like they failed him. They're out in the river and this river is a crazy river and they're out there looking and the police um, stopped looking because they can't find him, but the family's out there always. And she's like, I feel like we failed him. We have to find him. And she doesn't want to live. And I, you know, and I said, you know, maybe you can speak to a trauma counselor and grieving, but trauma too, because this is devastating. He was only 20. He just turned 21 and they celebrated his birthday, of course, with him not here, but they need to have him back so they can, you know, so they can go to some place and, and value him and, and visit him. And they need like, you know, like when you said, I don't, I think they need to see him that he is deceased. You know, they, yeah, yeah it's, it's hard eh, to see them suffer so much, but they do need that. You know, and that's the thing about funeral services that people underestimate the value of the seeing and touching. Um, we know that, that is probably the most critical aspect of, of when you deal with grief and you're dealing with loss. Mm -hmm. um, you know, when, when you lose, just think about ordinarily when you lose an item, you lose your keys, you know, it may, may have sentimental value to you and you don't, you can't find them and you just feel this sense of emptiness. Now you take that loved one and you can amplify that by 10 million that this sense of loss you know, the average person can't understand that. And losing a child is so, and, and, you know, when we say child, you know, it's any parent losing a child. You could be 75 years old and lose your 45-year-old son or daughter, and you're still going to feel that. It's, it defies the, the, the normalcy of how we experience death, which is, you know, you get older, the children take care of the parents. Yeah. Now, when you take, take this whole different avenue of, okay, the child dies, I mean, there is so much unfinishedness that's there that walking somebody through that and guiding them through that process takes a very, very strong person because, you know, you have to be, you have to be close enough, but far enough away to be able to provide them with that guidance. Yeah. Yeah. You know, as, as we're talking, it, it, um, I lost my dad two and a half years ago and it was the most brutal time of my whole life. And we won't get into that too much, but with my dad, I thought, oh, I'll have the funeral home near where I live. So it's going to be convenient and everyone can come over to the house after to eat. And, and I'm so distraught during this whole thing. I can't even believe he actually passed away, he passed away in my arms. So it was very hard. He had Alzheimer's. And, um, I remember I was scared. I was so scared. I thought I can't ever do this alone. I, I never want to go through this. My God, if I lose a parent who has Alzheimer's and doesn't know who I am, I would die. Like I was, and so everything that I didn't want happened. And then I had to deal with this. And I went there and I was so scared to go where, you know, pick out a coffin or do this. And I was like, oh my God, how am I going to get through this? It was like, like, I think I blanked out a lot because it's a very hard time. And then when I went, he was on the gurney and I seen him and he looked so good. And I was like, oh, dad, you know, and I, it's so confusing to me because I thought he can't be dead. He looks so good. And then, but what I struggle with now, and I know this it's off topic, but it's not, is every, it's only 10 minutes away from where I live. So every time I drive by, I break down crying because I remember that's the last time I seen my dad there. And I know I, I got to turn it around into something positive. Like it was, 
a lot of people were there to say goodbye. It was a nice place, but it's still very hard for me. You know, I have, I have certain families that have experienced <clears throat> the very same feeling. And, you know, one of the, the most uh, challenging parts about being in funeral service is being comforting enough and kind of letting your guard down as a mortician where you're not so stiff and rigid, where people don't feel like they can even uh, joke with you. And, you know, during my, during the arrangements, that's one of the things that I try to, to do is my first step is to get people to think about their loved one and how I get them to do that. Because sometimes it is like what you're saying is you disassociate, you try to, you try to prevent yourself from feeling anything. And, and that's like one of the hardest things for people is that it's okay to feel that, you know, feel about the way you do about death and to feel that you miss them and, and feel the loss. A lot of people don't want to, to do that. They don't want to experience that. So a lot of people will say, oh, just let's just go with cremation. Let's not have to deal with that. And, you know, I explained to them the importance of seeing their mom or dad in, in, in here in the funeral home, because that's where you find the most amount of connection uh, to that person. You can touch them. You can talk to them. You yeah. can say things you need to say that maybe you ordinarily would, weren't able to say because maybe your loved one talked too much. Maybe they were always yeah. interrupting you. And now you have a chance. You have the chance to, to connect with them in a way. And, and that's the memory of being able to share with them that you took care of them at their final time when they truly needed you. And, you know, and that's, that made me cry, but that is so, that's so good. You said that because I keep saying to myself, Oh, you're such a dummy, Diane. Why did you pick a funeral home near your house? So if, you know, me and Marty are driving by and everything's great. And then I look, I'm like, Oh no, the funeral home, we should have took a different route. And I think, why did I pick something so close to home? But, but you know, yeah, I think for you, it's, you know, I, and I can understand because I've had people say that to me as well. Yeah. But you got to remember, I mean, that should be a place that you can hold sacred in your heart and say, hey, that's where my dad was. And, and that, you know, it's not a bad experience. Oh. It's a different experience. And rewriting and cha changing that narrative is something that I try to, you know, convince people to do as well. Because you can't look at that experience and say, well, dad died there. It's no, it's my dad was there. He was there. I enjoyed being there. I spent time with him. Yes, it's terrible. My dad died. But the, the fact is, is that that's where he is. And some people, I had a gentleman here. Interestingly, I love interesting stories. I had a gentleman that came here and it was about three o'clock in the morning. Um, I'm, I was preparing someone for another funeral and, and I was finding myself kind of like a, kind of in a difficult place. Cause I was like, you know, I had a couple families that came through that were very difficult. Um, they were very demanding, very, you know, just very hard to deal with. Yeah. And no matter what I did for them to try to make their lives better, it just didn't work. And sometimes it just doesn't, no matter how hard you work as a mortician or a funeral director, sometimes it just doesn't work. So here I am, I, I'm doing this late night work and it's about three in the morning. And I remember feeling, I was like, you know, this is really, you know, my job is, you know, people aren't happy, you know, not that you expect people to be happy, but you expect them to be pleased with your services because you put so much into it. Yes. yes. Here I am. I'm, I'm doing this work and all of a sudden I'm, I hear this, I hear somebody out in the back part of the lot mm -hmm. and it was on the back part of the ramp and he was talking and I went outside. And I'm like, Hey, can I help you? And he said, yeah, yeah. What's up, man? I said, um, not much. He said, well, what's going on? He goes, not much. He just thought I'd get drunk. And I said, okay. Well, heck, I, <laughs> sounds fun. I yeah. said, sure, go ahead and enjoy yourself. I said, but why are you here? He mm -hmm. goes, well, my friend was here. Mm -hmm. and I said, okay. I said, well, tell me what happened. So he goes on to tell me that he was so glad that the funeral home was there because that was the only place that he felt close to this person. Aww. You know, that was a moment. It was a really, really... It was, a, it was a moment for me that I thought, wow, you know, like here I am thinking I'm not making a difference yeah. in helping people. And then all of a sudden, out of the blue, there's somebody that's there, you know, drinking, of course, but, you know, telling me that, hey, I'm, I'm really thankful that you're here. And right. it was a moment like, wow, you know, is this, is this some divine intervention? Yeah, yeah. Or is this just, just dumb luck that I have to be working here at three o'clock in the morning? Here's this gentleman, you know, 
getting intoxicated, but basically pouring his heart out to tell me how grateful he was that we were here. So, you know, you never know how these things are going to go, but I tell you, it really makes you feel wonderful when people say things like that, that you made a difference in their life. And, and, and again, you know, you, you feel that same thing that I feel and we touch people in a way that they, you know, there is no other experience than to feel this sense of closeness to someone when you're dealing with death. Yeah. And you, you know what, uh, be proud of yourself. Cause I think you had a transformation on me. Like when you said that all of a sudden I'm like, you know what, now I can, I can honor it. I can honor the funeral home and think I, I honored my dad there and said bye to him. And I, I stood up and I did it. I fell apart, but I, I did it. So at least I can look at it as that's the last place I honored my dad. And he would have been really proud of me instead of breaking down every time I drive by it. So you actually yeah. helped me. So thank that's you. Wonderful. No, that's great. I mean, you know, with these experiences, when you're doing these uh, discussions with people, uh, you, you never know what's going to trigger something that's going to make them feel better. An example I had was I was teaching the death notification course for the state police about a year ago and two older lieutenants came up to me and uh, I both, I knew both of them from my time when I served. And after the course was over, they said, Dr. Bailey, do you have a second? And I said, sure. What's up? Well, the one started telling me that he had these, you know, un uncontrollable uh, times in his life of when he was just emotionally overwhelmed. And, and both of these guys were very, very big fellas. They're, they're both very statured men, um, well-respected and just really, really good people. And both of them said to me, you know, hey, I just want you to know what you said during the compartmentalization part of this. I understand that now. I understand how my world, I can put everything into this little bucket and forget about it. And then all of a sudden I start crying because that's when that compartmentalization gets reopened and it's triggered by something I could be watching. And the one gentleman said to me, you know, I was, I was sitting there watching TV and all of a sudden I just started crying. And I said, okay. I said, so what's wrong with that? Because we're not supposed to cry. I said, yeah, we are. You know, the, the emotions that we feel and the tears, that's our body's way of releasing stress. It's just another form, you know, but we as a society look at it and say, well, if you cry, you're weak. And, and that's not even the case. I, I've witnessed some of the biggest men and, and strong women that have come through here and have broken down. And, and that's my job, you know, is, is this house here that I run, this funeral home, is designed specifically for the outpouring of emotions. When I get, when I, when I, one of the things that I do, and I, this is my trade secret, but I know the most important thing to get to people is at the very end of the service, I play something, a song that had touched the family in some kind of way, along with the photographs and video. And when we share that video, I don't care who you are, yeah. people look at that and they start realizing why they're there, and they start realizing the pictures and the person and the feelings and emotions and breaking these people down here at the funeral home. That's our job. So that that way we can help our society recover because, you know, we always talk about, um, everybody always says, Oh, I need closure. I need closure. See, I, I think that's the whole wrong terminology. Yeah. Uh, we don't need closure. And Kubler-Ross said it best that we need acceptance. You know, even though Kubler-Ross was talking about the dying patient, we still always utilize the five stages in when we're talking about death, because that's the closest aligned to what we know of, of what we experience. You know, that was a theory that was taken from Bowlby and expanded. But when we look at that as a, as a whole, we start to realize, okay, I, I can get acceptance. I can get to a point in my life where I accepted death and I'm able to continue that relationship. I worked with um, my, my, my studies were at Hood College with uh, Dr. Terry Martin, which is probably one of the one of the best human beings you'd ever want to meet. He's just a, a wonderful person that, that is a psychologist that deals with death. And when I when I worked with him and learned from him, you know, the acceptance thing was very important. And getting back to your story about your dad, he would talk he would often talk about um, what was called stubs, sudden temporary upsurgence of grief. Mm -hmm. And it's the same thing as a trigger. So all of a sudden, you start to feel emotional and you don't know why. 
And it could be a smell, it could be a sight, it could be a joke, it could be a clothing, it could be just about anything that could trigger that experience of feeling all of above that, <laughs> that grief. Yeah. So it, it's really remarkable that we can get to that point of how we feel. Uh, so then you look at Warden, who's another great um, researcher, and he talks about continuing bonds, being able to continue that relationship while also building on new relationships. And see, that's some of the things that we, when we look at dealing with death, people often feel like I can't have any other relationships with other people because then I'm forgetting them. Mm-hmm. And, and that's not the case. Um, you can still have that relationship and you can still feel connected, but you can also build on new relationships. And, and oftentimes we find that, you know, a lot of spouses that lose their other half will experience that. And, you know, we have some that they can move right on within a few months, six months, a year. And you have others that just, you know, get into complicated and long-term grief. And that's where it becomes challenging to try to get them out of that mindset because then you get into deep depressions. Yes, I've seen on both sides. Who's Cooper Ross? You said Cooper Ross said. Cooper Ross, sure. Elizabeth Kubler Ross. She has the five stages of grief or death and dying. Um, and you can, you know, she was a researcher. Her research came out in 1969. And, you know, we talk about, and what she's talked about is the five things denial. Uh, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and final acceptance. And looking at that acceptance piece, you know, a lot of people got into the whole closure mentality and, okay, we need to have, I need to put this, I need to put this behind me. I need to put their death behind me. But like you, you know, your loss and your dad is something that is still one, very fresh and, and, you know, very raw for you. So seeing that, that funeral home um, does trigger you into a, a sudden temporary upsurgence of grief, where you then find yourself saying, I, I just, you know, I was having a good day and all of a sudden I'm not, you know, I, I, and one of the things for me, and, and this is something I deal with, my grandmother and I were very close. And, you know, I spent a lot of time at her house when I was young, when I was very young. So I would spend a night and a couple of her favorite things were uh, Columbo, which was a TV show from the 60s. I have it. I have it. And I watch that on my downtime. I watch Columbo. So it's so cool. And I'm watching Leave it to Beaver now for my downtime. <laughs> so, so for her, Columbo was like a big thing. And I guess maybe that's why I ended up becoming a police officer because uh-huh. of maybe that, maybe that, the consistent reassurance, be a police, be a police. Maybe that's what it was. But, um, you know, so that to me is how I reconnect with her. That's my continuing bond where I watched that Columbo and I all of a sudden think about when I was, you know, five, six, seven, eight, nine years old and I was laying on her lap watching Columbo. And that's, that's the things that, you know, we need to be able to do and be doing it healthily so that we can say, okay, um, I'm in a, I'm, I'm, I'm still connected with her. I still visit her gravesite, and I still, you know, and this is the other part that people sometimes find, um, a little strange, but when I have dreams of, you know, my grandmother, mm-hmm. I find myself in a, I find myself much happier and it's yes. being able to have that still have that continuing relationship is one of the most important things. People often say, oh my God, I dreamed about so-and-so. It was so weird. It freaked me out. And, and I always tell them, look, you should be blessed that yeah. you had that opportunity because I have families that come through here and they look at me and they say, Mark, I can't even remember what their face looks like. Yeah. Yeah. I don't remember what it's like to touch them. So yeah. having that experience for me, I consider that a blessing because being able to have dreams of my grandmother and talk with her, drink coffee, all those things was uh, a, 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 it's still a significant part of my life. And I'm able to continue that relationship, even though it may be more of a non, you know, it's a non-physical relationship, but still it, your mind is probably one of the most important uh, tools that you have to be able to not only cope, compartmentalize, and then also overcome things like death and stress and all these other things associated with the things that don't make us feel good. Yeah. The, when you, the dreams, I think they're, that's remarkable. And the last, I've had maybe four of my dad or five, but the last one I had was maybe four months ago. And I remember his face just really close in my dream. And I was like, dad, dad, you're here. And he's like, yeah, I just wanted to make sure I'm worried about you. Are you okay? 
dad, I'm okay. I'm worried about you. Are you okay? Yeah. I want to make sure you're okay. Yeah. Okay. Bye. Bye. And I woke up and I was like, Oh, and I wasn't sure. Was that a dream? Did my dad die? Like it's so real. You get confused. But that day I was so happy and I know he was checking in because he's worried because I'm worried he's not here. But like, you know, so I believe in all that too. And, and it, it does make you feel good. It makes you, yeah, it does. It makes you feel wonderful. Like, okay, you know, there's, there, there is something beyond yes. what our normal existence is. Um, and, you know, we're not just going to forget, you know, and those relationships can continue just in a different fashion. And a lot of times parents that lose children will tell me that they came in, you know, in their dreams. And, and it's, it's actually, it makes you feel good. Like, okay, everything that I know and I experience doesn't, I'm no longer crazy because we have other people that have, have done the same thing. Yeah. Experience. Yeah. I've been asking Shirley, have you, you know, dreamed of Shane? She's like, no, no. I think when they're so hurt and so distraught, they're just, it's, they're blocking it because they're in so much pain. But I, I, I said, I'm sure you'll dream of him. I'm sure you'll get signs. I know it's not the same at all, but I, I asked people that and I became very intuitive since I've been working with a death, murder, missing. And so I'm sure I can hear it in your voice too, that you are also. Um, so what can you say? I'm like, you definitely understand families of missing loved ones. What can, what advice can you give them? And I've had people say, well, people are telling me like, get over it. And I'm like, get over it. I said, like, if they had a child who was murdered or missing, they would never say that. I said, just like families are going through mental torture and they can't, they can't rest at all not knowing where their missing loved one is. Some are 30 years, some are 50, some are one year. What advice can you give? You know, I, I had the experience of working on two cases um, and the, their loved ones were never found. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a very, it's very difficult because each and every family has a different level of connection, has mm -hmm. a different level of uh, relationship with their loved one. Uh, and, and to try to get them to a place where they can still, you know, have that relationship of some kind, um, it's, it's really challenging. And, you know, for me, when I dealt with the families of the two missing, uh, the one family had retained the camper that was found in another state. And they, this was, you know, this, ha this incident occurred in, in the early 1980s. Mm -hmm. And when I was working on the investigation, this was in the early 2000s, and they still had the camper. And they were still hoping that they were going to see, you know, their daughter come through that door. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the reality was, is that the, that the, the person who had killed her um, never came to justice. The, the body was never found. And the family was left feeling, okay they're still going to come home. Yeah. And, you know, you can't take that as a, when I worked on that case, I couldn't take that from them. I didn't want to say to them, well, we believe that she's deceased. You know, I never wanted to take away that hope because I felt like if I did that and what, let's just say hypothetically, she was still alive yes. and she stood back up, then I would have made them re relive a whole nother trauma. So I looked at that and I said, okay, the only thing I can do is be supportive. I can listen. I can hear their concerns and I can try to guide them to making them feel a little bit better yeah. where the other one was a, a young, it was a younger man that had died. And I became pretty close with that family as a result of that. And uh, interestingly, they handed me a part of their, their uh, loved one, a, a, one of their uh, pens. And I thought, wow, this is, this is amazing that this was something that was very special to them and they gave it to me and you know building that relationship and and just being there for them was probably that's the most important thing but telling them to give up hope or telling them to they shouldn't feel the way they do nobody can tell anyone how they should feel we all think and feel and interact differently you know and for me it's just when i'm listening to people it's listening to the story and then trying to interject maybe different parts of my life into theirs so that maybe it helps them. Just like we talked about, about your dad, some of those things will help you 
to feel better about the, the experience that you had. Yeah. You know, um, I was flown down to North Carolina for a conference. It was with Monica Kaysen and I was at her house and I'm not sure how many years ago. And I was sitting in the living room and we we're talking about some drawings I was going to do, some forensic art drawings. And she was telling me about a case and she has the dogs and she's the searcher and she finds missing people. And she was telling me about the one girl that they found that she, that Monica found. And then she says she's very close with the family and they gave her part of the girl. Her ashes were beside me. So I'm on the couch beside me behind the couch, like in an urn. And I was like, huh? <laughs> like it freaked me out when she right. said that, but she was so honored because that's how close she was with the family. So I know a lot, like everyone handles it differently and it's, you put a really good spin on everything. Like I, I trust you hundred percent. Anybody who's in your area, definitely go to you because you're compassionate. You, you care, which is the most important. You're genuine and real, which is also very important. And you have a lot of awards and honors. I'll put your bio on the website so people could read everything. What was um, the best award or honor you've ever got? Did you have lots? Uh, well, I have a couple. Okay. Um, one just occurred recently. And the reason why it was so meaningful to me is because it's going to help literally thousands of people. Uh, in the Army, I was tasked with writing up a uh, proposal to the governor of Maryland to accept 100% uh, tuition assistance for soldiers that, that serve to be able to go to any educational institution here in the state of Maryland for free. And when I was given this task, you know, I didn't, at it, it, first, I didn't really realize the amount of people that was going to affect until I started doing the research. When I started digging into it and realizing that some of my soldiers were only making $3,000 a year to serve as National Guard, mm -hmm. and then we expect these people to try to elevate themselves, but yet still serve their, their state and their nation, was, was to me, I started realizing, wow, this is something that's much bigger because I have a chance to help people in the inner cities of Baltimore, where a large recruiting pool came from, where these are people that, you know, have not a whole lot of means, family structures sometimes aren't always the best. And here we are giving them an opportunity to get an education at some of the finest institutions here in the state of Maryland. So when I wrote this proposal and presented it to the governor, Governor Hogan, and I talked with him about it personally, and I said, Governor, this is, the, this is what we're going to do. It's going to help workforce development. We're going to help um, you know, people in the inner cities. We're going to be able to make a significant impact on the lives of Marylanders. He absolutely loved the idea. I pushed it all the way up, and you know, this, this actually was approved in the legislature this past year. So for me, you know, it's going to help. You know, there was, there was a little over 4,300 uh, Maryland National Guard soldiers, you know, and the majority of those people were part-time, over 3,300 of them. So being able to offer them an opportunity to propel their lives into a new direction or give them an opportunity to get more experience or get a free education where they're not going to feel that they don't have, you know, the means to be able to do that, that to me was probably one of the most special awards um, that I've ever been given. Um in, in, you know, in my work history, because you're going to be able to help people. And that's, that's, what's great about that. One. Well, congratulations. That's excellent. You should be proud of yourself. That's amazing. That's amazing. Wow. The other one I, I think was uh, rather interesting was um, in, I worked on the, uh, the Beltway Sniper here in DC. Uh, I don't know if you recall that story, but uh, we had a, a gentleman that was going around and shooting people from the trunks of cars. Yes, yes. And, you know, I was, uh, I was, wor I worked on that case with, you know, thousands of other great law enforcement officers. Mm -hmm. uh, we stopped many, many cars, and eventually we were able to narrow in on him and actually, you know, apprehend him, bring him to justice. So, so there was some, that was another award um, because, you know, he, here's somebody that is actively trying to kill people mm -hmm. and, you know, and killing people in, in, I think we lost a total of eight people during that incident. That's the DC sniper? Yeah, the DC yeah, sniper. Yeah, 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 I remember, yeah. Yeah, so I was able to work on that case, um, and a good friend of mine, who is David Reichenball, he wrote a book about, about the incident, and, um, you know, just that part of my life, and being able to thwart something, and, and eliminate somebody who was such a high risk to our society, that, that to me is one of my other 
close awards that I felt very good about, um, you know, being able to, to remove somebody like that from our society. No, you're amazing. That's awesome. Uh, awesome. No, no, the people I've worked with are amazing. I, I've just been lucky enough to work with them. Oh, no, no, give yourself credit too. Um, no, that's great. And then we'll we'll end up we'll end off soon. So you have a remarkable relationship. I see your post. So talk a little bit about her. Uh, Rebecca. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so Rebecca and I are, um, you know, we, we've been dating for several years now, and we finally decided that. You know, we're in a position um, that we were both, she just finished mortuary school. And that was one of the big things for her was getting through her education because it's very intensive. That was uh, three years. And uh, once she finished that, we finally were able to say, okay, we can, we can set a date. Now it's going to be tough because we're both morticians. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> she, will be, she will be here in a few weeks. So, you know, so both of us uh, having to align our schedules perfectly for a day, uh, we finally just said, okay, this is our day. And I think we'll have enough morticians there that if somebody passes away, we can send somebody from the party. They'll all be, they'll already be properly dressed. So we'll just, we'll just send somebody out from the party. But, um, you know, well, so we finally, we, thank you. Yeah. So we finally were able to do that. And November 6th, uh, 2021 is our day. Excellent. Congratulations. Yeah, because I, I see pictures of you two and I can see the love you guys have for each other and your eyes, both of your eyes shine. So I can oh, tell how much you love each other. So that's really good. I'm, I'm really happy for you. Thank and, you. Um, yeah, so wow. It, so much information. I know this will help so many people. Like I said, you did a transformation on me, which is, which is awesome. I just did a Tony Robbins four-day event and it was so inspiring and there were 16-hour days and and then I'm listening to you and I'm like, you got a bit of Tony Robbins style too, the way you were talking. So thank you for helping me to look at the funeral home different when I drive by, because sometimes it catches me off guard and I'm like, oh no, I forgot it's, it's right here. And I just break down and I was having a great day. So now I can flip that around and say, that's where I honored my dad. My dad would be so proud and just take a deep breath and, you know, but look at it differently. So thank you. And is there anything you'd like to end with? Um, I, well, I would like to thank you. Um, this is a great opportunity. Anytime you get a chance to talk about death and people are willing to listen, uh, that makes, it, it makes our society better. Yes. Uh, for me, I, I, you know, the impact that I make, you know, I, I don't know if you also noticed that I have three grandsons mm -hmm. and I have one that it absolutely is inspired by everything that I do. And I'm so, so grateful because he wants to be a state trooper. He wants to be in the funeral home. He's, he's here at the funeral home quite a bit. The other two, one's in school and the other one's still younger. But the middle one, you know, this is his passion as well. And nice. the impact that I'm making on him is, you know, ideally to make our society better. Yeah. So, you know, for me, I'm, I'm grateful to be able to be part of this. And this is a good time to do this because when you're talking about the holiday season, this is when a lot of people start to become depressed and saddened about losing a loved one. And this is also when we see an increase in death right around the holidays. Which is so sad. Yeah. Right. So we, we do see that. And you know, what's interesting, I, I thought at one point that we used to we used to have a lot more death around the holiday season. Yeah. And that's actually not the case. Um we have a lot more more death in the summertime. Um and I you know there's there's still some uncertainty as to why because you know summertime usually has more happiness. There's more more time for being outdoors. Um, but that's when we see more, more suicides, mm -hmm. but you know, this time of year is, is also something that does harm people, especially after the new year. Yes. That's when we start to see, you know, a little bit more suicide. So for me, I think one of the messages I would like to talk to, you know, tell people in final is that, you know, if you need help, if you need to talk to someone, you know, you have peers, you can talk to your peers about it. If you don't feel your peers are, are good enough you know, talk to somebody that can, can help you understand your feelings. And that's one of the biggest things that we see with people that commit suicide is that they don't understand their feelings and they feel like this is the only option that they have. Mm -hmm. And when they feel like this is the only option that are put in a position, then, you know, and this is when we find that we, they make decisions that will affect them and their families for the rest of their lives. And there's nothing more saddened than to go to a funeral of a, a, a man or a woman and you see the children putting a flower on mom or dad's casket or yeah. a mother putting a flower on her son's casket 
there is there is something that if we can prevent anybody from doing that and, and tearing their families apart, that's something that I would like to see, um, you know, as part of the messaging is let's, let's get out there, let's get help. You know, in the military, we see 22 suicides a day. Um, a and that's day, a day. Yeah, 22. Wow. So that's why we always hear, that's where you hear that number 22. Yeah. Um, so we want, we want to change these things. You know, we want people to, you know, try to find that happiness. And a lot of times people are unhappy because of the very fact that, and, and, and this is one of the things I, I saw in my research is that when you see people that deal with these things, they, they never dealt with death or they didn't deal with their experiences of loss. And this is something that carries on with them. Yeah. And, you know, it might be just a small part, but we see that happen where, you know, the son was a great kid and then mom or dad died. And then all of a sudden they turned to drugs or alcohol and, and those are never going to be a solution. And, and it's a temporary fix to solve that. And then they end up, you know, we end up seeing them succumb. So, so that's a message that I, I'd like to leave with is that, you know, get help, talk to people and, you know, get out there and, and, you know, make a difference. If somebody, you know, needs help, you know, get them the help they need. Yeah. So again, thank you from the bottom of my heart. I appreciate your opportunity to speak and to be part of your podcast. I mean, this is a, this is a big deal for us. Um, because again, talking about death is, is something that we just, you know, we, we have to do. We yeah. have to experience it. Thank you. And it is, um, it's, it's really important what you said. So thank you for saying that because it's true. A lot of them do commit suicide because they have unresolved issues. And also thanks for being on the podcast because it was an uncomfortable subject, the death, but you made it comfortable because you gave a, a lot of, you, you talked about a lot of different stories memories, examples, you did a transformation on me, so I can look at it differently. So I know you're going to help a lot of people. And I'm really grateful to say we're at, we're in 60 countries right now. We have listeners in Jamaica, New Zealand, Austria is one of our top three listeners um, all over the place. And um, yeah, and we're over 1,543 cities now worldwide. So thank you so much. I know you've made a big impact on people's lives and and I'm so proud of all your accomplishments. It's amazing. And I wish you the best with your marriage. I'm sure it'll go great because you guys look very passionate and happy together. So again, thank you everyone for listening to Can I Help Find Your Missing Loved One? Until next time, um, best wishes, stay safe and contribute. And thank you, Mark Bailey. You're remarkable. And I know you've helped a lot of people explaining everything from your heart. Okay. Well, best wishes to all your listeners. And thank you again. Hey, thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. Can I Help Find Your Missing Loved One is created, produced, and hosted by Diana Trepkoff. Associate producer and sound editing by Marty Brown. Please don't forget to call in any tips. Thank you.